The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Fantastic to have this guest uh, on again. The last time we had him on, he'd just written a book uh, about Jerry West and the Golden State Warriors. Now he has released a a new podcast series called The Dream Team Tapes, uh, which uh, originated from his book Dream Team that he wrote about 10 years ago. But now we get to hear the raw audio from all of the Dream Teamers uh, on this Dream Team Tape series. I've listened to the first three episodes. Uh, Been really enjoying it. Uh, Jack McCallum, how are you? I'm pretty good, Nate. How you doing? Uh, well, as good as could be expected so far. Uh, it's awesome to have you back. Uh, I want to start talk about the show a, a little bit. Um, you're listening to the raw audio of conversations that you had 10 years ago with all these uh, awesome Hall of Famers. Uh, what stuck out to you the most as you went back and listened that may have kind of slipped your memory after 10 years or, or maybe stuff that didn't make it into the book that you were reminded of? Um, I guess uh, what I keep getting reminded of when when I listened to him is how lucky I was that I caught these guys when I did. And I, I guess what I'm referring to is the enthusiasm uh, that all these guys had when they talked about this experience. That, you know, I, that's sort of why I was so lucky to have done it when I was. The book was not my idea. An editor at Random House called up and said, hey, what do you think about releasing a book 20 years after the Dream Team and get their perspective now and how the game has changed and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, my intelligent response to that was sure. You know, so, and when I went out, uh, it was just to a man. This was just so important to them with all that they had accomplished. Um, what how seminally important this was in all their careers, with the possible exception maybe of Jordan, who thought a little bit more about 1984 because that's kind of what la- you know put him on the launch pad and uh, you know really made his career. And uh, so that enthusiasm and that importance you know really came through when I uh, you know went back and started uh, listening to the tapes. I think that's the one thing that probably jumped out at me the most. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think. You know, you're, it was that enthusiasm that enabled you to write the book, right? Because these, they're not going to just like have sit down for two hour conversations. So I mean, they're not gonna, like getting paid for this uh, or anything. So the the fact that they wanted these experiences to be memorialized uh, in a book uh, and that they had the relationship with you and trusted you to do it uh, as well. Uh, yeah, well, the fantastic. whole you know the whole game almost for me the way I look at it was uh, trying to get the guys. I'm not saying that something writes itself because it does not, but most of your worry and angst in the beginning is trying to get the guys. You not only have to get them, 
you know, when you're doing a book like this, you've got to get them for an hour. You've got to get them for an hour and a half, two hours, three hours. You've got to get them away from everything. Not only, you know, their own concerns, but if you do it in public, well, then you have everybody coming up to them. And really thinking about it quickly, the only interview I kind of did in semi-public was magic. He was doing commentary on the uh, the Maverick on 2011. We were in Dallas, and I talked to him, you know, in kind of a public place in Dallas. But even that wasn't too bad. I mean, I mean, I remember we got interrupted only by Pat Riley, who came over <laughs> and really added something to it. He had he got magic off talking about a couple other things. Um, so I was really lucky to have got them in private and uh, at a time when you know, it wasn't always easy to get them. But once I got them, the subject matter really, uh, really held them. So you have these raw tapes. You have the book. The podcast has you doing some of the narration. What was the process like of taking this raw audio and editing it down into a cogent podcast format? Assuming that it is cogent, correct? (laughs) (laughs) I've I've listened. I'm allowed to say that. Assuming that it is. Um, It was a very different process because uh, I I guess when you you write a book, when you structure a book, you you are handling the structure. I mean, you know where you want to go and you can kind of, you know, put it together through your paraphrasing and your research backed up buoyed by their quotes, obviously. Well, for this, the audio was everything. It was it. It was 99.1%. was going to be my voice. So I had to structure everything around what audio I had. And um, sometimes in getting the audio, you know, I was doing this back when the word podcast was not invented. And there were several times that I had interviews and, uh, you know, and in the course of an interview, I might interrupt the guy or laugh or something. He said, and I'm going, will you shut up? You know, I said, if I would have known <laughs> back then, you know, so I lost, uh, I lost a couple things because I had, you know, that I, there was audio that I really wanted a couple times during the eight episodes of the podcast, which come out every Monday, mo- uh, Monday morning. Uh, there were times when I said, he said this, but I don't have it on audio. And I understood, you know, how weak that is. I understood that the whole power of this thing was their voices. That's that's what it was. And I never went back and looked at the book. When I wrote the eight scripts, I never even, I, I didn't open the book because I just built it all around what I had in their raw audio. And thank God I had, through some miracle, I had uh, saved these tapes, perhaps understanding back then that they would be of some if I was ever going to save anything, I was going to save the Dream Team tapes. And fortunately, I did that. Yeah. So you just like basically kind of storyboarded the whole thing out and just wrote it and said, all right, here's this clip. I'm going to put it here. And like you, you that was just all, all you or were you, did you have someone who's kind of uh, that you're bouncing ideas off who's helping you with that? Well, I had a, a technical guy, Mark Francis, who's a, who's an Aussie and uh, he was great. I mean, I couldn't, you know, he was a technical guy. And you know, it's funny, Nate, uh, I recorded these in a New York studio, but since since I since they were released or getting ready to release, I went back and in each of the episodes I made some minor error. And I haven't been able to get back into a studio. So I don't know whether how you have to do this, but I had kind of a DIY fix it a couple times when I called up my technical guy and I said, uh, you know, 
um, I got I screwed something up here and I want to make a small change. And so I have a little microphone at home and a little uh, program and I made a couple changes from my laptop at home and through the miracle of him, he was able to kind of, uh, you know, correct a couple mistakes that I had made. Maybe you have a podcast where you don't make any mistakes, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the uh, that wasn't the uh, the case for me. So uh, yeah, yeah. You know, according to Twitter, no, I do not. In fact, have a podcast, which I don't <laughs> don't make any mistakes. Yeah, I made I made one in the uh, in the second episode that I put. Uh, you know, the 1936 Olympics were held in Munich because Munich was in my head from 1972. But they were you know they were the Hitler Olympics and they were held in Berlin. And you know these things really uh, start to gnaw at you uh, a little bit. But basically the experience experience was um I had done I had read my audio book. I had I had done the audio book version of my book Golden Days, the Jerry West uh, yeah. book that you had referred to. And that was that's some heavy lifting, man. That's four hour that's four days in a studio, six hours a day. And the good thing about a podcast is that yeah, it's scripted. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It's scripted, but nobody's looking at the script. So if something goes starts to go haywire, I mean I just change it. You know, it's yeah. no big deal. You you can't stumble but so i think when i got in the studio i was i was pretty happy with uh i was pretty happy with my performance and i really found it you know really enjoyable experience so so you wrote out literally every word that you planned to say beforehand <laughs> yeah and i mean i oh you would ask me if anybody yeah my uh, scott waxman who is the uh the editor of uh he is my actually originally my book agent who now created this uh podcast company called diversion podcast and scott had an opinion about the first episode what i should put in there in the beginning to kind of do the old promotion here's what you're going to get ladies and gentlemen he had some feelings about that um you know to kind of buoy up the what you're going to be hearing but beside yeah. that it was pretty much uh it was pretty much me deciding what order we were going to go in and once i did the first episode thinking that um maybe people might be interested in how i put it together and the, the difference and you know where i had to get the guys and the difficulty of getting them and once I did that, I kind of made it basically chronological that episodes two through eight sort of take you through the evolution of the Dream Team. What's your relationship like uh, with uh, the guys uh, on the Dream Team at, at this point? Is, is there are, are there any that you would say you would you would consider a friend, or is it we're just you know collegial type of? Uh, do any of them not like you? Well, Jordan may not like me now. After oh yeah. The, after the recent, uh, somebody sent me a text today that said Jordan's going to kill you man um, <laughs> you know and what we're referring to is that Jordan telling me you know on the record straight up that he told uh, Rod Thorne that he didn't want to play if Isaiah was on the team and I you know I have found that and I wrote that in the book so it was in the book eight years ago and from what I recall yeah it got some play people talked about it but there were other things that people talked about too and the idea after particularly after watching the last dance that Michael would want Isaiah to play <laughs> would be, you know, that would be silly. Now, Michael, as he has often done, you know, either obfuscated, downright lied, or danced around the subject of Isaiah when he was on the Dream Team. So that's why it got this new kind of octane, you know, and that's okay. Obviously, controversy sells a podcast. More people listen, but, you know, I was uncomfortable with it. I'm glad. I hope that mini wave is over because you don't want what you did to be reduced to one thing. You know what I mean? 
Oh, you yeah. Don't, you don't want the whole essence of it to be. But that's what everybody wanted to talk about yesterday. I was on, you know, 15 shows because that's what people kind of uh, wanted to uh, wanted to talk about. So, uh, yeah, I scripted it out um, kind of like uh, but always with the thought that as soon as we can, we got to get to a voice. Yeah, that we got to get to somebody's audio other than my own voice. Sometimes it went longer than I wanted, um, but I, I tried to make that balance, you know, more in favor of the voices of the players. Oh, yeah, and answer see, your question about friendliness. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the guys. I'm. I put it this way, uh, and I'm going to roast them a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I did a book on the Phoenix Suns. Spent a whole season um, with the Phoenix Suns and Mike D'Antoni, and I consider Mike a friend. Um, I don't cover the league anymore on a full-time basis, so I consider it okay for me that I have uh, that Mike D'Antoni is my friend. But if you took how many times does Mike D'Antoni call me compared to me calling him? <laughs> You know, you know, 19 out of 20. So I don't usually go out on that limb and call people that I cover friends. I just don't think you have a normal that the the metrics of the relationship when you're with somebody in this business are the same between a journalist and, and a coach and particularly a superstar athlete. I would say that the reason I was able to get this done, the book, this is the Dream Team book, was that I think these guys thought I treated him fair. And yeah. I, I go way back. I mean, that was the advantage I had. I go back to 1984. And to a certain extent, you know, we were all on this. I don't want to make too big a point of this, but we were kind of on this journey together. The NBA was nothing when Magic and Larry came in. They sort of saw it ro- rise. Michael comes in. Barkley comes in. Um, you know, the the, uh, the Bulls-Pistons rivalry, all these great teams that never won it. And you could see it rising. And to a certain extent, I got credit by being on that journey with them. And I would be surprised if any of them said I wasn't fair or didn't treat them fairly. And that Sports Illustrated back then, again, I was lucky, was part of this whole thing in making them who they were. So that's about as far as I would tell. I mean, I can call up Charles. He may call me back. <laughs> he, yeah. he may not. But I... Uh, I've glommed onto them enough. I made my career on them. I wrote about them in Sports Illustrated. I wrote a book about them. I wrote this podcast about them. I mean, nobody would know my name if I didn't cover these guys. So I feel I've got, uh, even if we're not, quote, friends, I feel that I've gotten more than an even from them uh, what I've given to them. Yeah, you, you spawned a number of thoughts for me. One of them is you mentioned that those guys felt that you treated them fairly. And I think it's hard now to cultivate that thought in an athlete because they're just getting the snippets like you were just talking about with this Jordan thing right there's the one snippet usually the most negative thing out of this you know eight hour long podcast series that you did eight episode long and that's all that you know comes out of it and that's all people want to talk about is this one snippet or you write something about someone and either it gets aggregated with that that one negative thing or one of the one of the guy's friends will like talk to him and say this is uh, this guy wrote this about 
brought you. And a lot of times, you know, they might see the tweet about it. They might not read the full article. You at least had the the fact that they're going to read the whole article. That's the only way they can get the information. Yeah, there was a, uh, I don't want to make too fine a point, that there was a shared understanding of what your role was. Um, that, I mean, I had fights. Uh, I had some disagreements with Jordan, with Barkley, with Clyde uh, Drexler. And uh, even, I mean, a lot with Isaiah Thomas and the Pistons. And even then, even with Isaiah, which probably continues to this day, last time I was at the Hall of Fame banquet last year, and I was talking, you know, I was talking to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to me, very frankly, I thought uh, you covered us unfairly, and I thought you didn't. I'm sure Isaiah considers me one of these, you were always in Michael's camp type of guys. And he can have his opinion. I think he's wrong, but he can have his opinion on it. And you know what? But at the end of this, he said, hey, he shook my hand and went, yeah, but you know, you've had a good career and I'm glad I knew you. <laughs> and I, I thought that was like really, uh, really interesting. And now with all the platforms that people have, uh, Lee Jenkins, who kind of took my place on the beat, has a totally different job. You know, I mean, Lee's not there anymore, but when Lee took over for me, um, Lee's job was he had to cut through with the three or four guys, the four or five guys in the league that mattered. LeBron, uh, Harden, Westbrook, um, Steph, Durant. Like, he had to cut through the layers of dealing with them to get to what he had to write about. And he did a fantastic job of it. My job was completely different. I'm not saying I could always get Michael. Well, I'm saying I could almost always get Mike. I used to, there were times when Tim Hallam, the Bulls PR director, knew I was there to get Michael, but I'd wait for Michael after practice. I'd say, Michael, hey, I gotta, I gotta get you. You know, we want to, you know, might be on the cover. Uh, I need some time. And he would say, okay, it was a lot more uh, backstreet. It was a lot more playground. It was a lot more fun. It was a lot looser. There were still, I didn't, one thing I hated to do, and I did a really bad job of it, was dealing with agents. I just almost never called an agent. I'm not saying that's the way to do it, (laughs) but, and I knew David Falk. Yeah, I had to know David to deal with Michael. Beside that, I'm telling you, Nate, I didn't call up an agent from one from one year to the next because I could usually get them. And that to me, you know, worked out a lot better. And that is just not that is just not the way it's going on now. There's still pockets of good people. Raymond Ritter in, in Golden State, you know, the, the public relations director for the Warriors does an unbelievable job, you know, but it's still different. I'm still not hanging out and going, Steph, hey, can I ask you something quick? You know, uh, that just doesn't work anymore the way it worked for me. Yeah, it's it's definitely a different environment. And also, I, I think it was, to some degree, there just were fewer publications and fewer requests back then as well. I mean, now it's that not only are there more <laughs> requests, but saying yes to each individual request is probably going to get you less of a reach than it might have back then as well. You know, being in Sports Illustrated, that was, you know, probably the number one thing that you would want to be in at, at that time to get some exposure. Yeah, there was always, you were always battling uh, television. But beside television, you kind of snuck in there once in a while as the number two most important. And I have no illusions. Uh, that's what helped me a lot. I, I remember, uh, I think it was whatever Kareem's last year was, 89 maybe. The yeah, Kareem, 89 is it. Kareem yeah. was really going badly. And uh, there was a lot of talk about it. I mean, uh, you know, at, oh, hello, he was 41 or whatever he was. <laughs> Played a lot of games, but things weren't going good. And Kareem was getting hammered 
about it. And Riley wasn't easy on him. Well, we wish we were getting more from, you know, from the man. And uh, I had no special relationship with Kareem at all. You know, I mean, I knew him and he he probably knew me, but like everybody else, I was semi-intimidated by him. You know, I didn't stroll up to Kareem and start talking about uh, television shows or anything. And I remember the, the public relations director, Josh Rosenfeld, came up to me and said, hey, Kareem wants to tell a story. Kareem wants to talk about it, uh, you know, and he, and he picked you. And the only reason he did that, the only reason was Sports Illustrated. So I was the beneficiary of a lot of that uh, situation back then. So, man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Every sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences. Hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz. Find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. And it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easier slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us man i just love american giant just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas I'm going to be freezing, but the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm, it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since 
spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us let's shift gears here for just a second and talk about just some of your favorite seasons to cover just the, the most exciting whatever criteria you want to use you wrote the best stories or whatever just what seasons stick out in your mind as being just some of the most memorable when you look back well clearly there's a clear winner for me and that was uh, the first year I, I had covered a lot of nba i got to si in 81 but i didn't really i wasn't really on the beat i mean the michael's rookie year the one story we did about him big story alex wolf wrote it it was more of a college story you know alex covered colleges so my first year on the beat when we were really gonna make this a beat was 85 86 so one always remembers that and then it was that incredible celtics team they were just so much fun to cover it was ridiculous very early in the year i got assigned to do a story on the lakers were coming to town and bruce newman was going to stick with the lakers and i was going to stick with the celtics and we were going to write a long piece culminating in what happened at the game at boston garden and you know walton had joined the team uh Bird was in a good mood and they were rolling. You know, they were just, I'm, tr- you know, I don't know whether I'd call them the best team that I ever covered, but they were close to it. They had an eventful, the, McHale was funny, Walton was funny, Danny Ainge was funny, um, the coaches were great. And so that season, you know, definitely uh, sticks out with me. Uh, 92, the Bulls' middle run. Um, just simply because of the whole summer. It was basically a, a summer in Portland. I mean, the Portland, the finals, they were playing the Trailblazers, a couple games there. They held the NBA draft, and then they held the qualifying tournament for the Olympics. So I definitely remember uh, the 1992 Bulls season. And that Bulls team was really great team. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I guess, you know, they won 72 in... Uh, 95-96, but uh, this Bulls team was, you know, and the Blazers were really good. You know, Blazers took them to six games, and they were ahead in game six going into the fourth quarter. So I remember that. Just, just don't don't tell the people who uh, who made the last dance that fact though. That was that was omitted from the <laughs> that they that they made the comeback with Jordan on the bench in that game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pippen led. I, I always I, I think I referred to it in my blog as the Bobby Hansen game. He made a stone cold <laughs> three pointer from the corner, man, and he made that shot i go they're gonna come back and win and pippen pippen was amazing in that game you know i mean he really he you know he led the kind of led the charges um so that team uh i really liked unlike a lot of people would not pick these teams but because tim duncan gets so forgotten the 03 and 05 spurs teams hmm. uh when the finals weren't well the, the final in 05 was pretty classic against the pistons you know he had yeah. the robert ory game but in the 03 game it was kind of the Claxton and Jackson game with Speedy Claxton and uh, Steven Jackson, you know, were huge in that game. And Duncan in a 2003 game, game uh, the clincher, went for 21, 20, and 10, you know, in that game. And then against the Pistons in game 
97 in 2005. He went for, uh, you know, had a big game. I think he had 27 in game seven. So the Spurs sometimes get, you know, a little overlooked, but I love those teams. My all-time favorite substitute guy, Brent Barry, was on that team. He was always a great quote. So I really remember, uh, really remember that team very fondly. Um, and the first Warriors team, the, the Steph team that won it uh, when they beat without Kevin, without KD, not that they were as good, but this really looked, you know, this really looked new, you know? Yeah. It looked, it looked different. I wasn't covering uh, full-time by then. I was long gone as a full-time beat guy, but uh, I really think fondly of uh, of that team, and that's why I call Steph a, uh, you know, I mean, I thought Durant was an evolutionary player, but Steph, to me, is one of the, you know, five or six really revolutionary players in the history of the game, and that's why I remember that, that series. Uh, I don't even... That's the one he was not the MVP, right? Uh, Iguodala well, was, he, maybe. He, yeah, he he has not been the MVP in any of them, to to much consternation. But yeah, no, it was, it was Iguodala. I, I thought it should have been Steph, personally. Oh, but, I, uh, you know... I do not get a vote. You know, one of the... I remember only three or four things. A lot of things stick with me. And one of the things that's always stuck with me was Kevin McHale telling me this years ago. I said something to him about why doesn't Bird treat you more of an equal and uh, why doesn't uh, he seem to give you more respect you know i don't know what exactly the thing was and mikhail gave me this lecture on when you're like the guy when you're like when it's on you every night to go out there and it's your team no matter what happens it's it's your team that responsibility that was the case that's the case with lebron that was the case with larry bird sure as hell the case with michael jordan uh it was probably the case with magic even though those showtime teams had so many uh weapons and that was the case with curry and that was my argument why you know it was his team and Iguodala flourished in Golden State for a number of years because he was not the number one guy. I mean, we found out when he was the number one guy, there's nothing against Iggy, but he was not a number one guy. You know, <laughs> The reason he was so great was he was a number four guy. And that was Steph's team. And to me, you know, he should have been uh, MVP of the, uh, of the finals. One other team, and we can move on, the 87 Showtime Lakers. Nothing yeah. particular about that team. 85 might have been better. But the Showtime Lakers were, to me, one of the most efficient teams we have ever seen. Killed you with the fast break, killed you in the half court. They didn't shoot many threes because they didn't shoot many threes. Had a very high offensive efficiency. They had very high percentage shooters. And the the efficiency of that offense, I don't know whether I could pick one of those teams, but boy, trying to get a balance between a team that was called Showtime, yet had so much efficiency when the game slowed down. It, it would be hard to match, uh, you know, it would be hard to match somebody for the way they played offense during the decade of the 80s. Oh, yeah. I mean, Magic, there's an argument that Magic, for at least a short period, was the, the best offensive player ever just because of the way he ran the team and, like, what their overall efficiency was, I think. Um, yeah, you mentioned 87. Like, for me, it's interesting. Like, I have, you know, having not covered it, not having the memories that you have, it seems like when I asked that question, you focused more on, you know, the teams and the relationships that you remember and the styles of play. For me, I, I kind of look at it as, like, the overall season and the quality 
quality of the games and the teams but 87 would definitely be on my list uh because you had that classic 87 eastern conference finals between the pistons and the celtics and mikhail playing on a broken foot and really kind of the last stand of that group and then a great finals like the rubber match between the celtics and the lakers uh, in the 80s that one definitely stood out for me uh yeah the junior it was the junior junior skyhook series yeah yeah the the game four uh, to win that that's like it has a a classic moment west playoffs were kind of shitty that year you know it was 39 win seattle in the in the conference finals but um i think 88 is actually a very underrated season and an underrated finals that uh for that first pistons laker series yeah i mean it was very intense um isaiah was gigantic in that series and uh i always i remember it you know you remember things because um you know you what did it mean to me jack mccallum and what it meant to me was that i had to write the most disastrous kind of story there's no sportsillustrated.com at this (laughs) point so i had to write a 3-3 uh story for the magazine what what is that meaning that it was 3-3 it went to seven at the end of the week oh yeah at the end of the week when i had to write I had to write it at 3-3. And people Oh yeah, and it's coming out. Yeah, cuz you guys your deadline was what like Sundays. It was and Sunday. The magazine would come out. I had a subscription, I remember. The magazine yeah. would come out like Wednesday or Thursday. Right, most people it would get to your house. If it was a subscription, I think you got it on Wednesday. Whatever yeah. it was, game 7 was probably Wednesday. So I had yeah. to kind of oh, it was just whenever the playoffs started that's all I thought about, you know, because the world only matters to what it matters to me, you know. So we got to 3-3, and it was a, uh, you know, the Pistons probably, probably at that point were a better team. You know, uh, Kareem, you know, had that kind of foul, you know, got the, got the uh, yeah. little bit of a G- little bit of a game, ticky-tacky foul. Game six, the free throws yeah. to win it when yeah. Lane Beer slightly bumped him on the sky hook. Right, exactly. And because uh, for those who don't remember, by the way, uh, Pistons go back to LA in the old 2324 they're up 32 going back to LA exactly you know and I, we thought it was over and in fact when it was 33 and that was uh the other reason it's notable was that that was the year right after uh the 87 that Riley said I guarantee you we're going to repeat and the um the subtext of the NBA then was nobody repeated you went through I don't want to get this wrong so you had to go back to the Celtic yeah no that's right in the, the 69 Celtics were 69 the last Celtic team nobody repeated in the 70s the 70s was this anomaly uh where a bunch of different teams won and then you came the 80s you had the two super teams but they weren't able to repeat you know? <laughs> Celtics 84 Lakers 85 Celtics 86 Lakers 87 and Riley had made the repeat guarantee and the 88 team I mean they were a little bit running on fumes you know they had kind of tuned out Pat a little bit by then and uh you know Kareem was getting up there and so you're right that was really a gutty victory and it probably sort of transfers a little bit to uh, the 98 Bulls who kind of won because they were the 98 Bulls you know that's sort of yeah that's sort of why they won that that uh one of my favorite quotes from the last dance was Jalen Rose talking about the Eastern final that year and the, the Pacers were really good I had forgotten how good the Pacers were and Jalen Rose said you know finally we we you know we we knew we were better we were confident going in we thought we were going to win and then we're looking at Jordan and we just turned into this JV team you know we turned into this JV team and that's sort of it's like the classic definition of your pedigree you know you won because of your pedigree 
And that was sort of for the Lakers. Uh, that was their pedigree. Although, you know, got back uh, got back the next year also. <laughs> you know, yeah. Darn if they didn't. I mean, they completely fell apart injury-wise, but uh, made it back the next year. You, you know what was so funny about those two years? This is part of why I thought that that season was awesome. They play three straight Game 7s. I don't know if any team has ever won three straight Game 7s in one postseason other than them. They, the second round against Utah, uh, conference finals against the Mavs, and then they beat the Pistons and then the next year they sweep every round in the West playoffs to get to the finals and then get swept by the Pistons partly because they everyone got injured that year but uh that that was kind of interesting you're like oh well they're out of gas here they're and then they had a much easier go of it the next year until they got to that great Pistons I didn't remember the I didn't remember the the seven gamer against the Mavericks was it was it why were they that good then uh you know was that Aguirre and those I was just like uh, Aguirre was with the Pistons by then right no Aguirre was still on that team he got traded the next year that was uh like the mid-season trade in 89 uh was when or 88-89 is when that happened so yeah Aguirre was still there oh okay well I guess you know he was one reason they were good but I didn't real I did not uh did not realize that uh they had taken him uh taken him back that deep in fact I am going to uh in fact I am going to roughly look that up the eight that's the 87-88 season yeah yeah I got it I got it in front of me right now yeah I mean and the the Lakers blew him out in the last game um I think uh but yeah Mark Aguirre was still on Aguirre the team. averaged 25 points a right game up. that year yeah that's uh that's putting it up they had uh Ro, Ro Blackman was really good and and Derek Harper was a tough gamer he, he was a tough dude and Sam Perkins was on that team and oh the immortal Roy Tarpley <laughs> Roy Tarpley was still getting a double double he was still going 13 or 11. You talk about a career. Nobody blew it like that guy, but that's a whole other story. But I mean, I'm looking at the stats right now. He averaged a uh, 20% offensive rebound rate in the series. That's ridiculous. Amazing. That's like... For one player. Yeah, Rodman-esque. Like a, Rodman-esque. Yeah, ab- absolutely. But, you know, of course, uh, he, he then ended up getting banned uh, in, in the next couple of years. Um, so, yeah, so that was one. Also, like, you had Jordan's first MVP year that year. Bulls-Pistons. You had Pistons finally beaten the Celtics in the east finals like that was a really good one um 93 definitely really sticks out for me too that's well the 93 uh finals were uh you know just an amazing unlike every visiting team won somehow the suns win a triple overtime game in chicago with jordan going off i mean that suns team was really really a good team and i think there's uh i'm not going to bother to look something else up again but i think kevin johnson one of the most overlooked really four or five great players the four or five year great players kj played 62 minutes in that game (laughs) and he was amazing in that game they were really a great team and that was to me once again they the only reason they beat the uh, the suns was that you know because they were uh because they were the bulls but that was a that was a really terrific finals yeah so some other things like the bulls nick series before that was awesome um you had phoenix losing the first two games at home in the first round and then winning three in a row three in a row yeah right uh and there was a seven gamer in the west between the the uh suns and the sonics which was a great series too yeah yeah the the series with the uh the bulls series with the Knicks uh man I had forgotten how intense that was even though I uh I covered it that was some of the most intense you know the Knicks were really uh 
Pistons bad boys, you know, 2.0. I mean, they were tough and they had, and they had Patrick, you know, so they were really, uh, really a tough team. That might've been Jordan's, that could have been his finest moment, standing up to those Knicks in that 92-93 season and then staring down the Barkley, KJ, Marley, uh, Dumas, uh, Ainge, Suns in the finals. That's, that's some heavy duty work right there, man. That is a lot of work. No, I, I yeah, those are both like 60 win teams. I think I, I did a podcast with uh, my partner, John Hollinger, a bit ago, and we did the greatest individual seasons of all time. And I think we picked Jordan's 1991 as number one, but 93 we had as his second best season as what? we look back on it. When you consider both playoffs and regular season. Yeah, that's an interesting subject. Right? Yeah, no, I, I, sh- I, I should have uh, put that in, in uh, the notes I sent you beforehand so you could have well i would have had to do some research i would have probably had to do some i mean is you know like wilt showed up a lot or what not well so wilt is interesting you know uh another guy i do some podcasts with ben taylor he's gone back and looked at some of his wilt's team performances and he's concluded that he actually wasn't that good on offense because like he would score but he never set people up or he then later in his career moves into this mode of only setting people up but never scoring like he wouldn't he didn't really like draw the defensive attention and create opportunities for others and that really so if you look back at like the estimations of how efficient those offenses were they actually weren't that good even though his individual numbers were good so we ultimately didn't the one that really showed up on our list was uh 67 the what that was the one season where he was scoring and he was passing a lot well that that, uh, if that sixers team the 68 win sixers team yeah if you were going to ask me about my favorite teams but you asked me the teams i covered actually you know i i grew up near philly so my uh team that i used that my father used to take me to was uh you know the early 76ers so if you would ask me my favorite team uh that that team with wilt and luke jackson and wally jones and billy cunningham was one of my favorite players you know was the sixth man you know on that team that's one of the great teams of all time that uh, that team right there yeah alex alex hannum changed everything for them right alex hannum uh come in and he was sort of turned out to be the wilt whisperer you you could you know he was a wilt whisperer for a couple years yeah yeah it didn't that that role would change as time went on you could only really get to him for a a year or two right yeah the one other year when wilt was was really good and the only reason i remember this was from the, the golden days book was wilt was really really good when the lakers had that 33 game win streak and they and they won the finals you know when jerry west finally broke they didn't you know god bless jerry but they didn't break through because of jerry wilt was the mvp in those finals uh, and he was he was unbelievable he was doing what you said he was a setup guy but he scored and he blocked shots and he rebounded and that was getting near the end of you know his career he went off into beach volleyball and uh <laughs> coaching the san diego conquistadors uh, shortly after that um the one thing that stuck out to me i mean i i've never gone back and watched this series i probably should try to find a way to do it someday is that he really shut down kareem in the west finals against that bucks team that was also an all-time great team do you remember that at all I do. I mean, I, you know, I was in, uh, trying to think, was I out of college? But the games, you know, the only thing on regularly was the finals. They finally put the finals on. So it was a big, it was kind of a big deal. And you couldn't be, I'm trying to think of the word here. Um, I mean, I was a, I think that year, yeah, I was uh, my first year being a sports writer. But you couldn't get any kind of uh, statistic, you couldn't get any kind of analytical feel for the game. You know what I mean? You didn't see them very much. There weren't websites that broke 
broke it down. So you kind of were watching, even though I wrote about basketball and and played basketball, uh, you didn't feel like you were as invested in being able to evaluate people. You know, you just kind of looked at the numbers a little bit. So I remember, I remember watching it, and I remember thinking that Wilt, you know, has a pretty good hold on uh, Kareem here. But did I really know why? <laughs> you know, did I break yeah. it down? The announcing wasn't sophisticated. They didn't isolate stuff. You didn't have Yubi going, uh, he begins uh, at the dotted line. He crosses <laughs> over. You know, you didn't have any of that kind of thing. And so yeah. there was... And, a, and your TV was 13 inches. Yeah, exactly. And your TV probably uh, went out uh, during it at some point during it. So uh, I remember it, but not in a kind of being able to break it down way. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just basing it just on what the stats were from the series i think there were like a couple of reports at the time that indicated that um so last subject here for you give me a few things that you think are better about the league now whether it's style of play or how the league is covered or the fan experience or you know the experience in media quality of the coaches whatever it is and a few things you think are worse uh, about the league now well i don't you know cover it on a uh on a full-time basis so i feel feel a little bit uh I feel a little bit lacking in being able to give a, a full experience so let me get the old man uh gripe out of the way I was never much cared <laughs> I never much cared about the fan experience although I get it I get it that you can no longer go into an arena and serve a cold hot dog you know, and, a, and a crappy Schlitz beer and charge people ten dollars so I get you know kind of the upgrade of food uh I do, you know, I grew to hate the uh, the loud PA. I never did like the loud PA uh, rooting announcing. I mean, there oh, was yeah. a, there was a very distinctive PA announcer that was in Philadelphia for a long time. Did you ever hear the name Dave Zinkoff? You have to go it does back. Does not ring a bell for me. You have to go. You have to Google Zink. Zink was one of the great uh, public uh, public address announcers, and of course, he wanted the Philadelphia Warriors slash Seventy Sixers to win. But he did it in a way that he had a very distinctive style. Uh, he would say. Uh, Chamberlain at the line shooting two like this. Or he'd, he'd have a way of making the other, like Garfield Hurd would come into town when the Buffalo Braves were in the, and he would make a basket and Zink would go, Hurd of Buffalo. You know, he had all these, he was able to do it cleverly, but he never really outwardly rooted. And I don't like rooting by the PA announcer. I just, you know, wherever it is, and I guess it's in every arena kind of now, right? Yeah, well, and the music during play and just like the the constant assault on the senses which you know it's good business because you're always trying to get the median fan who it's going to skew towards people who are more casual because the hardcore people are going to be there anyway so you want to if you're trying to appeal to more people and new people you're going to throw all these bells and whistles in there yeah Uh, on the other hand you know most guys my age do not like the game now you know the way it's played but i kind of like the freedom of it i kind of like the open of it and I kind of like the idea that if you can shoot a three-pointer that you should shoot it <laughs> I mean one of the yeah. things we learned from the last dance was this incredible uh difference between the 
I didn't know. I didn't go into it thinking we would see it that much. The difference between the '90s style and now. I was never a beat people up guy. I never, you know, celebrated Anthony Mason. Uh, I got the idea that you had an enforcer on your team, but you know, like Maurice Lucas, you know, was Walton's guy. But yeah. he could score twenty points. You know, Maurice was like a twenty and fourteen guy when he wanted to. You know, so uh, that's better to me. I like the openness of the game. I like the fact that skill sets are, uh, you know, really emphasized. I wouldn't mind a four-point shot. I think it would bring, you know, something into the game. Wow, you interesting. Know? Yeah, you and uh, you and Tom, Tom Haberstrow of uh, of NBC would uh, should have a conversation about that. I mean, yeah, the skill uh, the skill level. I mean, it, it's kind of like I I played basketball. So I mean, not at a you know one year you know all through high school and one year of small college. The skill it requires to come down and shoot for like near 40% from 28 feet. I mean, that is skill you know, to me, that could be recognized. So, you know, I'd be willing to have that discussion. Uh, so that's some of the things I think are uh, are better. Obviously, teams are managed by incredibly smart people. Was there kind of this delicious carnival atmosphere when the owner of a franchise was also the guy arranging the ice capades, you know, and uh, the rodeo? Yeah, okay, there's something kind of colorful about that, but we're better off with, you know, uh, you know, with Joe uh, Joe Lacob and uh, and Peter uh, uh, Peter Goober Peter, Peter Goober who ran Paramount Studios you know we're, we're probably better off you know with them running uh, running the teams uh, so that to me is better what is worse yeah you could even see the 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 uh, the GMs too like the the scene in the Last Dance where they're like oh yeah Jerry Cross was a scout for the White Sox and he went to Jerry Runtorf he said hey how about you make me the GM and Jerry's like okay yeah exactly. And they happen to get somebody who, I mean, it used to be this kind of bird-dogging talent. And now the GM, uh, you know, the guy's got to come out of, uh, I sure, you can over-analytics it a little bit. Do I love, you know, and I guess I say this with uh, with, with my good friend Mike D'Antoni, do I love 42 minutes of, of James dribbling, <laughs> you know, of the beard dribbling and passing up every uh, mid-range jump shot? I probably don't love it, but yeah. I love that thought, you know, has gone into the, into the game and that you can break it down a lot easier. And for a media person, uh, hey, man, it's really tools. You know, I have not availed myself of them and don't have to, but it's tools that, uh, that you can turn to. Uh, very quickly, what I don't like about it, uh, you know, was I mentioned, you know, there's still great public relations people in it, Raymond Ritter at Golden State, uh, Julie Fi in Phoenix. You can usually get what you want, but there was an idea that you could have the dealings with the players yourself, and you could have the idea of the getting the coach yourself and waiting for them by the car and arranging to talk to them outside of the arena. And for my job, that's all I can talk about. There was a kind of better spontaneity to it and a better working atmosphere between the journalist and the player. I'm sure the player wouldn't agree with that. He probably likes it better when it's more arranged, but I, you know, that's one definite thing that I was glad that I covered it uh, when I did rather than now. 
Yeah, I mean, it may be that if you took the guys now who are kind of the same stature as you were then as, you know, one of like the top five or so writers, they probably are able to do that still, I would think. Although they might still have to go through PR or the or the guy's agent or something. But I think, you know, if like uh, Woj wants to get someone for an interview, he probably can. But he's also got to do all this stuff where he's breaking news and doing all this horse trading and all that stuff too to, to get that level of influence, which uh, that's one thing that I kind of, I kind of lament a little bit is that there's so much of this focus now on news breaking and being the first one to tweet something that was going to come out anyway as and like those are considered the best reporters as opposed to like who's actually writing the best story and doing the best analysis yeah that i mean that is just you know the way it goes i mean i i remember the first time i've been on twitter for a while you know basically you have to be on there to kind of promote yourself endlessly but i had written a story for si.com that this is for uh three four years ago that jerry west was uh you know i found out because i was doing the book that jerry was going to leave he was, all right he yeah was i remember leave golden state so to i remember calling up chris stoney editor of si and i was going hey i got this thing uh you know jerry's uh jerry's gonna leave uh can i write it up for si oh my god you know let's put it out at you know and they knew exactly when the heavy tweet traffic was like it was like you know 10 30 at night i put it on there to me it was a little bit of a minor story <laughs> i I mean, Jerry wasn't the coach. (laughs) I mean, he's a major figure in the game. And that, to me, is when I really woke up to this emphasis on breaking news. There were, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, kept tweeting that story because it was something new. And I could have written a very well-researched feature about Jerry in which he talks about the old days, and it wouldn't have gotten half of that traffic. So since my strength was always kind of more writing and taking the long view and everything, uh, what Woj does to me is just that... I I uh, I I can't believe it. I, I well, I mean, he definitely works incredibly hard at it, and he's very good at it. I mean, that's it, uh, to me. Uh, my greater concern isn't with him so much as it's just what's valued is the ability to do something five minutes before someone that was going to come out anyway. I mean, clearly there's competition for that. Clearly, people value it. To win that competition takes a lot of talent and intelligence and hard work. But it's just you know, why is that what's being valued? Is the question that I always get back to. Yeah, I know, but we, we might as well ask, you know, why why am I writing on a laptop instead of a typewriter? I mean, I, <laughs> I, I wrote my... I used to have whiteout. I, I wrote a book in the yeah. mid-70s. It was the first book about an old football player, Chuck Bednarik. Uh, I, I wrote on a typewriter. So that, to me, is extraordinary. <laughs> that is my most extraordinary achievement. On my gravestone would be, he actually wrote <laughs> stuff on a typewriter. And I love the feel of a typewriter. I mean, I, I think I was like, I learned to type, actually, in a typing class with the typewriter when I was like, you know, 10 years old or something. And then they, by the, you know, two years later, they're completely phased out. But yeah, you're, you're not supposed to be... A, a admonishing me for being too much of a curmudgeon that's my that's supposed to be my job for you (laughs) (laughs) all right well thanks man this was fantastic don't forget to listen to the dream team tapes i'm about three episodes through it really enjoying it so far definitely a different feel from the book if you haven't read the book um but it's uh also both of them are uh well worth your time so jack we really appreciate having you on uh always love doing this okay thanks for having me nick good The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. 
the slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love, all at once. Starting at $40 a month, experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets. And you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. Bring in Danny to get to a little bit of news here about the league's return and some stuff involving a couple of teams. Remind you again about our Patreon, patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue. We'll be having a mailbag out in the next couple of days for that. So please give that a shot. Also, that is a great way to support the COVID Daily News Pod if that's uh, something that you are listening to and enjoying. So I guess we can just begin with the fact that there's going to be this Board of Governors meeting tomorrow on Friday, and they are claiming that nothing is officially going to be decided there, although generally the pattern has kind of been that it does get decided that what they're indicating is various plans are going to be presented at that board of governors meeting and then they'll have a little bit of time to digest it and maybe vote in the next week or so after that right and as you would expect with a situation like this where different proposals hurt and benefit different franchises they are arguing strongly for the ones that benefit themselves uh dan feldman's talked about this well uh and that's completely fair and that's why it is up to to, in many ways, to Commissioner Silver and the league to do what is best for the players, do what is best for the league, because these constituencies are going to argue in their self-interest. Yeah, that's a little bit annoying. Zach Lowe had a long rant about that on his pod in the last couple of days, that it's just, if there's ever a time to pull together, please do it now. There have been all sorts of proposals out there. It seems like what's gaining the most momentum is some kind of a playoffs plus with between 20 and 24 teams involved. And there are many, many things that I would love to see from a pure entertainment standpoint. I would love for it just to involve all 30 teams. Like, why not? Uh, All of this oh the sanctity of the regular season and that should mean something like yeah in a normal year sure but how about you just make the most entertaining thing possible that's what i i'd be thinking from a pure entertainment standpoint of just hey we need to get people back watching this is a chance to take advantage of to get more people interested in the nba when there are few other traditional activities so do the thing that 
that's going to involve the most people and be the most entertaining however the more i think about it really the number one thing needs to just be having something that will seem legitimate as far as crowning a champion but within that universe just making it as simple as possible so that it can actually happen considering how difficult this is going to be and that to me is why the number of teams is so important i lead towards going going lower because first of all like the sanctity of the regular season is already kind of shot and especially with the idea that not everybody's coming elements like the memphis grizzlies having played an easier portion of their schedule and the pelicans having played a harder portion of theirs there's no way to unring that bell that's just a part of this but i do think that within reason this could be an opportunity for the nba to try some things out i actually wrote a piece for the athletic arguing that one of the wrinkles once they get to what i what is typically called a knockout stage so typically the entire nba playoffs are a knockout stage because it's a 16 bracketed tournament is for the higher seeded teams to be able to choose their opponents of the lower sided that's something that i support all of the time but i think that it's even more necessary this time because the typical home court advantage that would come in a series is not present here you know they're not getting the rest you know not getting any sort of rest or yeah. sleeping in and, their own and that beds. could also make it a lot more interesting too like oh, that yeah. could add some interest in a way where you know if you're losing the interest by having fans there by just ha- not having a playoff race uh, uh, as well you'd be like oh well let's this will make this interesting and the overwhelming concern i know you've you've articulated this well in a few different places is the safety the safety and well-being of of the players and everybody who is within the bubble whatever that bubble ends up being so that's I mean, it's another reason why for me you also don't want to drag parts of it out too long and and something that I've been you know a little bit heartened by is the idea that with the way the NBA playoffs work and this could be even stronger in this setting half the group that's remaining gets eliminated every time and without having to do travel I think playing every other day after the acclimation period is probably pretty reasonable maybe you take a little bit longer between rounds incidentally uh, picking opponents actually slows that down so that could work and I, I but I, I so I think that has to be at the forefront but you could still work within that and you know I I agree with I understand the sentiment behind what John Hollinger wrote uh Seth Partnow is supporting this as well of just going basic going simple because when I mean I'm working on this big piece about the unintended consequences of the supermax contract and it's like the NBA's history is defined in some ways in the modern era by the unintended consequences and getting too cute can absolutely lead to that here's the other thing that I would add as well I think there are some who would say your Pelicans fans your Kings fans your Blazers fans your Spurs fans might say hey you know what it's not fair the Grizzlies had the easiest portion of their schedule we as the Pelicans we had a really hard schedule we were barely going to play any 500 teams some of the projection systems indicate that we were even the favorites to make it now we're having that taken away from us but to me it'd be one thing if this was like the 2008 Western Conference and you have a 48 win golden state team that had won a playoff round the previous year not making it and not having a chance to play it out until the end let me give you the records of the teams that are going to be quote-unquote screwed over here and this is we have an an inordinately top heavy league this year with the top 13 teams basically is the only one you only have 13 teams that are over 500 this year kings 28 and 36 pels 28 and 36 
Blazers 29 and 37 and don't even fucking get me started on the east where the Wizards are 24 and 40 as the only team that might uh, and the the Hornets are 23 and 42 as the two quote-unquote most legitimate teams with a chance to make it no team in the east that has even a one percent chance of making the playoffs by any of these projection systems outside of the eight who are in there so it's like I'm sorry it's just not that big a tragedy if your team that's eight games under 500 didn't have a fair chance to make it yeah like relative to the Grizzlies okay like I, I mean a lot of people are like hey you know what there's been enough of the season and the Grizz are are way ahead of the Pels you know I, I I agree with that that's part of why I have the whole like sanctity of the regular season thing is is getting a little out of out of hand but it's just these teams aren't any good it doesn't matter like you you it's one thing if it's like you know we're we're two games over 500 and the Grizz are six games over 500 and we're clearly a good team like you started the year six and 22 I'm sorry if you're a Pels fan yeah there's there's definitely some merit there and I I think that the larger in some ways question is just how willing is the NBA in this unusual year to upset the apple cart like splitting like not doing conferences you know if if you're keeping keeping it eight and eight then I I think that you're 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 onto something and if they want to do something a little bit more more flexible a little bit more fun they could do that and like I I was thinking of the idea of partially using the cup game like the the group stage as not tune-up games that you'd want to do a couple before that but to kind of get the top teams in shape they would all be in my my the one i wrote up in the athletic they would all be guaranteed the top the top teams would all be guaranteed spots in the knockout phase um just because i don't think that would be fair at all like cause, cause I, and this is something frank madden replied to my what i wrote about is like a lot of people are focusing on the fairness for the bottom i'm much more concerned about the fairness for the top because some of those proposals like it, it would be ridiculous to have let's say it's an eight team bracket without the best teams in the league and anything that loosens it up, and this is my criticism of the NCAA tournament, is that if the goal is crowning a legitimate champion, you need to make sure that the best teams can't be eliminated in like a one-off or something, or, or just like a small a small sample. Like, that's why I firmly support best of seven. If there needs to be a best of five first round, maybe. I'm also not really in favor of the one through 16 reseed. I don't really know what that accomplishes in this specific situation. Again, if you're especially if you're looking at this as a one-off and also looking at it as, you know, teams didn't know that this was going to be the deal going into the season when they, you know, when they crafted their strategy throughout the season in particular. I'm guessing the Clippers might have tried a little bit harder if they were looking at a matchup with the Bucs in the conference finals because the one through 16 would be one would be the Bucs then the Lakers then the Raptors and then the Clippers and so you'd have Bucks Clippers Lakers would get a huge advantage from that getting to play the Raptors instead of the Clippers in the conference finals so I'm not really in favor of that I don't know why it needs to be changed this to me isn't the year to do it you're trying to create an entertainment product now you're going to get the best matchup happening in the conference finals so I, I I'm not really in favor of that this year if you're doing it as a one-off you're going to say okay we're going to do this now and we're going to keep doing it going forward okay maybe but but this time I mean, you can craft it however you want. I think making it one through 16 is less fair because that isn't the rules that people operated under going into the start of the year. And it also hurts the entertainment product. So why do it is my thought. I don't, do you, you've been a big proponent of that. Do you disagree with me? I, I think that if you combined one to 16 with choosing opponents, you know, if you if you did both those things. Oh, then... yeah. Sign me up for that. Absolutely.
absolutely. Yeah, because then you because then you eliminate some of those and you properly incentivize it. But yeah, one with that, but top sixteen without it, yeah, it, it it just garbles things up, and I don't think it garbles them in a way that's better. And I mean, what remember, like I've part of the reason I've moved away from supporting top sixteen throughout the playoffs is the idea that I I'm I'm a realist and understand that part of it is so that games are timed right, and that's going to be a little bit different since everything presumably will be occurring from the same place. But they're still going to want to time things out so that games featuring West Coast teams are more watchable for fans of the West Coast and East Coast, the same thing. So going 1-16 to actually makes that harder. So it's in some ways, even though they will all be occurring in the same place in the same time zone, they're still going to want to have those priorities in place. And and I, I think that it's, it's another reminder of why that is the way it is. Now, I'm a proponent of changing that once we get to a narrower group of teams, like Final Four, let's say, or the Final Four teams, you can change it up a little bit maybe. But before then, I think it, I, I understand why the system is the way it is. All right, a couple more notes we can talk about here. There's been some discussion that Kyrie Irving might come back as well. Woj said uh, on Zach Lowe's podcast that he's not aware of any plan for either Kyrie or KD to return. And note that the reporting was that Kyrie was going to miss six months when he got that surgery. So it doesn't really seem realistic that he's going to be back for a, a late July start. And well, also, and, es- by the and especially way, when yeah. they're a low seed and like just coming back for a couple of games, having to go into yeah. the bubble. Like. Yeah, exactly. So this is just so hilarious to me. The Detroit Pistons have begun a GM search. Remember, they're like- <laughs> what, was it two years ago? Yeah, it would have been two years ago that Ed Stefanski came in as a consultant to head a GM search that led to, I guess, Ed Stefanski. It, it was a GM, GM search that led to Ed Stefanski being hired above the GM spot. <laughs> Or did he? And, what did he start so now, there? And then yeah, yeah. But but now like now after a year of that, now he's going to do the same thing again to bring someone else in. I just I have no understanding of what the Pistons structures. Remember, Arntelum is in there as well, ostensibly involved on the business side. Supposedly, all of these people signed off on. Oh, Stefanski wasn't there yet, but on the Blake Griffin trade that is turned into something that's really set the franchise back after one nice year that he had. So I and the, we can comment on the candidates uh, as they roll in and i i've never been particularly impressed by stefanski's work i think he at least has the pistons on the right track and perhaps he's been part of convincing tom gores that hey maybe the chase the ace seed mantra isn't where we want to be after two playoff appearances this decade and zero playoff wins this decade that maybe they want to try and build something more sustainable they've got a long way to go in doing that they really don't have much as we talked about on your battle plans they're just in the you know straight up rebuilding playbook with maybe one guy on this team who's a a keeper for the long term and no superstar potential on this team so whoever it is is gonna at least they'll in theory have a mandate to remake everything but you've still got Stefanski still gonna be there Arntelum doesn't sound like he's going anywhere and so what the power structure is gonna be it's uh very convoluted from what I can tell it is and I remember god I think it was was years ago I, I believe it was at ESPN put together for the NFL a list of kind of like who the deciders were on every in every team's front office and or what the brain trust was and that gets into something that is just a challenge now with roles defining like for example the Bulls were hiring a general manager but that general manager is not the decider but on other teams they do and so it's just you know when when we it's just something that we're going to have to get better at as as communicators and everything else so my understanding is that this person will not be the decider for the Detroit Pistons but maybe they are well it's going to be it's going to be a a different dynamic we can close here
here with the sad news of the passing of Jerry Sloan. He had been diagnosed with dementia. It, it was clear from some of his public appearances that he had been struggling. And Sloan, in some ways, I think it is historically underrated for two reasons. One being that he spent all of his coaching career, other than a short stint with the Bulls early on, that was relatively unsuccessful. Uh, he spent most of his coaching career with the Jazz. And of course, the fact that he was unable to win a championship. And Sloan, to me, it's an underrated part of why Greg Popovich is so good. He really, when he tried to implement systems in San Antonio, he got a lot of it from Jerry Sloan, including the fact that they usually don't go at the same basket that most teams do. That started with Jerry Sloan and out San Antonio and everyone who came out of San Antonio's system does that also, where you'll see games involving those coaches. Teams don't go the same direction in the first and second halves as they normally would usually teams end up playing defense want to be playing defense in front of their own bench in the second half but sloan slash popovich coaches don't do that one of the things that struck me about utah's teams in their heyday was that they actually would experience an offensive decline in the postseason and i actually think that that's some what of an indication of sloan's brilliance and the brilliance of his offensive system because it's clear that he was getting more out of the talent that was available than maybe would have been expected and some of the stuff that they would run just their incredible execution all the cross screening his flex system getting guys like malone and stockton in a position to succeed taking advantage of them for example stockton i think he's maybe a little bit overrated as a creator in terms of a guy who drew help and and the amount of pick and roll that stockton and malone ran has historically been overrated but one thing that stockton is one of the best ever at was throwing entry passes to guys either in the post or coming on a lot of the cross screening action that was so popular in the 80s and 90s and just getting the ball to guys right near the hoop who are coming off of screens and so that the offense that they ran really took advantage of that and once they got John Stockton those were some great great jazz offenses in the regular season and Sloan was also ahead of his time in terms of rest they really did a lot of resting of John Stockton that really helped to continue his career one of his all-time greatest coaching jobs was in the 0304 season you'll recall that Stockton retired at the end of the 03 season at age 40 they still managed by the way to be making the playoffs with like Carl Malone and John Stockton in their late 30s every year they then basically were assumed that it was going to be a total tanking team Malone goes and signs with the Lakers for the veterans minimum to be on a super team and that team improbably was two games over 500 19th on offense 14th on defense and I mean they really had no one that you would look back on as like being any good other than young Andre Kirilenko yeah 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 but I mean there's there's nobody else on that team that you would even look like who had they, they started a 34 yeah. year old Tom Gugliotta for 24 games in that season um yeah coming off his 19th ACL tear and wearing like a, a 35 pound knee brace yeah they had their numbers may be exaggerated I think their most common but, starting lineup that year was Arroyo Desha- Carlos Arroyo Deshaun Stevenson Matt Harpering Kirilenko and Ostertag which is or uh, th- which is completely amazing and uh, yeah I yeah. I dealt with Sloan a little bit uh so I started covering the league in 09 10 that was the year uh Darren Williams Carlos Boozer Kirilenko they made the playoffs and I I was always struck by by how he was really direct I I, I only asked him ever a few questions because he was already such a luminary and and the Warriors were getting their asses kicked by everybody at that time and um but was impressed with that and also want to mention Sloan's tenure as a player he 
He was in the NBA yeah. for 11 years, first for one year with the Baltimore Bullets, then for 10 years with the Bulls. He made all defensive teams more than half of the seasons of his career, six out of those 11, including four first teams and two all-star appear- and two all-star appearances. And so going basically straight from that, he retired after his age 33 season, was an assistant for the Bulls, and then became their head coach at 37 years old, and then had this illustrious career. And when as, a, as the coach of the Utah Jazz, they only had an under 500 record once and that was the 0405 season when they were 26 and 56 every other year 500 or better in utah and certainly he was lucky to have carl malone and john stockton but they rebuilt very quickly around darren williams and carlos boozer as well those teams were solid contenders made it to a west finals in 2007 gave the lakers good series in 2008 and 2010 uh, and then uh, he retired i think it was in the 2011 season so but really just a visionary in terms of what he was able to get out of some very limited teams in terms of the offensive system and uh, those teams were always considered to be the best executing teams in basketball i mean it's the jazz were the spurs before the spurs were the spurs is the way i kind of think about it uh, for uh with his coaching and i think if he had coached somewhere else and had success maybe he would have been considered better or if they had not run into michael jordan two years in a row with 60 win teams and they had a couple other teams that lost in the conference finals as well in the 90s so uh sloan hopefully someone who uh people understand just how good he was and uh, i think we can end it on that note we will talk to y'all on monday probably hollinger and duncan is out from this week if you haven't listened to that yet uh, anything that you want to talk about before we go uh, that aforementioned piece arguing for uh top teams to pick their opponents is up at the athletic i have a piece on designated veteran contracts supermax that should be coming out pretty soon as well and there will be a real jam radio between now and the next dunk on but i it's not ready yet so just keep an eye out all right we'll talk to y'all on monday till then at Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.